tennis.com podcast. And here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hello, everyone. Tennis.com podcast here on a Monday. Everybody in the office now, that's just myself and Richard Pagliaro. We have just two-man show again today, but... Um, you know, Pete Bodo coming back from Miami, so we're going to recap, take where he, take things from where he left off from the viewer's perspective here. And Richard and I both um, took in the tournament this weekend. Um, you know, there was a lot of, I think, important, maybe not necessarily important, but significant happenings um, between Rafa pulling out, Djokovic sort of getting back on the track after um, a loss at Indian Wells, Radwanska breaking through with that victory. Sharapova continuing this final round malaise she's been in. Um, of 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 what happened at Key Biscayne, Richard? What do you think is the the biggest takeaway from it, or at least your takeaway that you know the first thing you think about when you look back at this tournament? I would say Radwanska becoming one of the prime time pressure final players that she's now nine and two in finals and that she just won her biggest title and that you take Azarenka out of the picture which obviously you can't do she's undefeated against the rest of the tour so I think she really took a significant step forward and also not only that she won but she won without dropping a set and that she diffused those three three dangerous power players in Venus Bartoli and Sharapova and looked pretty damn good doing it too I thought and it's so interesting that Azarenka is the only person who's beaten Radwanska this year, and yet she's been her four times now. Uh, and you wonder if it's a little bit mental because they had that little clash where she, you know, kind of implied that that Azarenka was maybe exaggerating or feigning that ankle injury. You wonder if maybe she wants to beat her so bad now it's almost a little bit mental. Yeah, there was um, that sort of press from banter also came in when we were when you were writing about the women's what happened with the final with Sharapova and Radwanska right. there, and and. Um, Boy, Sharapova didn't follow up that remark. Uh, you know, when these two collided here, with a great performance there, and 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 for me, um, what's almost as interesting as as Radwanska winning is this continued, um, really, just inability for Sharapova to break through at this particular year. And this is the third final she's made, the th- by far the three biggest events. And every time it's been a performance where um, it, it wasn't looked very favorably on, on how she played there. And um, this one, though, it really wasn't um, you know, as much about kind of having little serve brain locks, you know, really bad patches of that. But, um, but Radwanska really just, just caught up to her shots, I think, played against the pace that she gave her well, but and ultimately made Sharapova really... Um, in, in some respects, hit herself out of this one, you know, to give to put it on Sharapova. And there's a lot to say about Rodwanska, but this uh, Sharapova second place thing this year has got to be kind of eating to her. Speaking of mental things, yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's a lot to like about Sharapova's game. She's a fighter. She really competes hard. She's a beautiful ball striker. Hits a clean ball, but. I agree with exactly what you're saying and even go back to last year where Kvitova took her apart in the Wimbledon final. If I'm Sharapova, now it's not just, you know, Serena and Venus who had the edge on her. Now it's the younger players coming up who have her number. Still, she's number two in the world, but, you know, not only is she not making traction, it looks like she's sort of staying the same. And if you're staying the same in tennis, you're getting worse because everyone else is getting better. And I think what Radwanska really did in that match, although it's seven five six four is by no means a blowout, she really exposed her as a one-dimensional player who 
when you get those blasts, she's huffing and puffing and shrieking and hitting harder and flatter. And when you're getting it back and making her play more, there's no alternative. There's no other way for her to sort of problem solve. It's just, well, I'll just hit it harder. I'll hit it flatter. And that, that doesn't always fly against someone who's a more complete player, albeit someone who isn't as powerful as Sharapova. I, I have, after the match, um, I kind of posed this question out on, on Twitter to people, really, what do you, um, you know, what kind of, grade how do you think of the women's tennis season after three months is really a quarter point you know in a sense it's 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 even a little farther than that in some regards when compared to just the grand slam season but um you know i think there's a lot to be said for both i think pros maybe some cons as well but you, you have azarenka becoming this number one that people have been clamoring for in wta for a couple of years now um Radwanski gets this big breakthrough in here um, but there are some also some things that um, you know I think WTA fans maybe wish to turn out a little differently is that um, we have Kleisers, Kvitova, kind of really not you know aside from past Australian Open have not done much this term in particular. Um, right, and Kleisers kind of, with a hip injury. Who knows yeah, how that's? You kind of wonder where Serena is also right. at. Um, she is planning to play Charleston, so. She's going to be kind of right back on the schedule. Um, and, you know, we also should mention Venus, of course. The yeah, run. that, yeah, that, that definitely goes in the, in the positive ledger, I think. But, really, what do you think about, I think, the women's tour after this? Because I think it's a good time to take stock after we've seen these three hard-court events. And, um, you know, I think the sample size is good enough. Yeah, I think, I think you make really good points all the way around. To, to me, the one thing the women really need is a really great, compelling, exciting final where it's not a blowout, it's not a straight set, it's not somebody clanking 10 double faults, where you get like what you saw in Australia with the Djokovic-Murray semi, the Djokovic-Nadal final, where you get a really compelling, you're on the edge of your seat final. And I think, I do think that Kvitova-Azarenka can deliver that if you look at their recent matches last year, the Wimbledon semi, the Madrid final. I think that's a compelling matchup because the styles are different, but as you said, Kvitova has not been getting it done from what i understand she's ill but you know she's got to step up and and you want to see a rivalry that's compelling that makes you want to tune in and 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 really you know be be captivated by it by a great women's final and we haven't seen that recently although i think the the encouraging news is to see a Radwanska, to see an azarenka to see the younger players stepping up and i think serena's got more mileage left in the tank she's just got to play and she's got to get fit she looked out a little out of shape in that mm-hmm. wozniaki loss i mean she just she just didn't. She didn't have that step, you know. She didn't have that explosiveness that she usually has. Yeah. So you know the the rivalries that I think is you know is where the ATP is is always made, making right. its headway in the past couple of years here. So we had and you can see that the fans are engaged because you can get behind Djokovic, you can get behind Rafa or Roger. Even Murray has his supporters, and then the women's side it's still a, people kind of wait and see like who's going to be the one. You know, people don't want to go all in and invest in one player as fans. Because you just don't know it fluctuates. That was a sellout final, and um, you know, men's final, and and a couple of years, you know, as recently as 2010. I mean, you would never really guess that from you know, even players of Djokovic and Murray's caliber. You know, those two firmly ensconced behind Roger and Rafa at that point. But you know, obviously, Djokovic has totally made headway on that, and um, and, and that you know, the final it didn't turn out to be a great. Um, 
you know, a great match by any means. But um, you know, first set, Djokovic, he basically had the same match for the last three matches of the tournament. He runs through a first set pretty easily, and um, it has some trouble basically kind of sealing it in the second, though he wins in straight sets every time. And yesterday in particular, it wasn't that he didn't serve out the match when he had a chance. Um, almost as more, almost more frustrating was that he had break points, break points in nearly, early in nearly every second. one of yeah. Murray's service games. Um, just how do you think you know both guys played here? Uh, maybe Murray to start because this um, coming off of what Murray did against Djokovic in Australia and in Dubai, where he beat Djokovic, and Murray had all that rest coming into this match. That had to be a pretty, I think, a disappointing performance. Certainly a surprising one for It me. was disappointing, and I think the rest factor was you could look at it two ways. Like a lot of people were looking at he's going to be much fresher, but I thought he was not nearly as sharp, and I thought maybe the lack of match play hurt him a little bit. And to me, the, the issue with him against Djokovic is Djokovic stands closer to the baseline, takes the ball earlier so he can move Murray a little bit more. He's also more comfortable changing direction, taking the ball down the line off the backhand or forehand, whereas Murray tends to play more cross-court, although he can go down the line on the backhand. And also the second serve. I mean, Djokovic can really get on his second serve, on Murray's second serve when he's confident, and Djokovic defends his own second serve better. That's why I thought Murray really had to have a good day serving with the first serve and he his percentage was not was not exceptional it wasn't you know horrendous but it wasn't great and you saw that in the Tipsarevich match where he didn't he was around 45 percent at points in that match and that's not going to get it done against Djokovic the other thing for Murray is I saw the ESPN interview he did with Patrick McEnroe and Chris Fowler on that Friday and he said you know people are always complaining that I'm too passive, I should be more aggressive. He goes, what do you mean, be aggressive? You mean just hit harder, slap the ball around? He goes, that doesn't work against a Nadal or Djokovic. And I think that's a real valid point, but I think he's got to be more aggressive with his footwork, stepping in closer to the line, taking it earlier. And when he does that, then he's got to be more aggressive with the swing. Because you saw a few times in the second set where he'd step in on Djokovic's second serve, but then he kind of looped the return. It's like, dude, you cannot get away with that against Djokovic. If you're going to step in you got to strike with authority. You can't just float the return and hope that this guy is going to miss because it's not going to happen. So I think in in both areas, he's right. He's got to be more aggressive with his feet and the strike when he steps into the court. And he didn't do that enough. He made Djokovic look pretty good at times there for sure. And um, I think for... And I mean, was there any doubt in your mind in that breaker that Joe... I mean, I was like, this match is... Once it got to the breaker, I'm not thinking, geez, Murray's going to drag him into the third. I'm thinking Djokovic is going to put the hammer down right here. Yeah, yeah, Djokovic looked, I think... I don't think even with all those those break points lost, he never really seemed to look flustered or out of command in this match. It was a clear favor versus underdog as the match progressed right. here. And, and that necessar- that wasn't necessarily the way it was... It was um, you know, handicapped to be before. And I thought people, I think, for good reason, thought this might be a lot closer yeah, than it was. Yeah, oh, sure, after but, the Dubai. You know, well. for Djokovic, I think one thing we should remember, since this marks the end of the hard court season, is this guy, for whatever he ends up doing in clay, I know clay is a big talk for him because of what he can do with the French, possibly, you know, even sooner this Monte Carlo. That right, he didn't know that would Carl, be a big yeah. deal. Obviously, he's won seven in a row. Um, whatever he does on clay, on grass, the Olympics, that's also on grass. This guy is, without a doubt, the best hardcore player, I think, significantly at the moment. And, uh, you know, come summer when this returns to North America here, um, you know, he's going to have a little bit of a haven there to, um, you know, 
potentially to make up for you know what he may be unable to do in the summer. But I think Djokovic really sets himself up well with this result and really gets um, you know gets himself and gets some of the other you know the other people kind of thinking you know this guy is still. He may not be the unbeaten number one that we saw this time last year, but he is still the clear-cut number one following up. Indy Wells, where he played fine, he, he just ran into Isner in a tiebreaker, which is pretty much a death sentence to most people. He comes back and wins Indian Wells And right to speak away. to your point, I mean, look at the guys he beat in succession. Monaco and Ferrer have won titles this year. You know, Murray was right there in Australia, you know, within a few points of getting to the final. He dismantled those guys in the first set. I realize he didn't sustain that level throughout all three of those matches, but he made those, I mean, he made Monaco look like, you're not in the same class with me for one. I mean, he just took him apart. The guy was struggling to win points. So his level, uh, it was tremendous in spurts. I mean, he didn't sustain it throughout the match, obviously, but he did what he needed to do. And, you know, the guy gets it done. You got to give him credit. Now, the last, last thing, let's, um, let's just mention the doll here for, for a minute, because, um, yeah, this is just kind of the latest instance of, of what we've seen really throughout the past um, many years now for Rafa is um, is just the injuries coming back to bite him here. And, um, you know, I, I, people can people have made a lot out of this pullout. People have made a little bit out of this pullout. But where do you kind of stand and where and, and how this really affects Nadal, if at all, if, if it's this is – you know, um, just kind of another thing that he knows he has to work over that's kind of been there for the past few years, or is this really a sign of, you know, something even more troubling? I think it's something, if you really look at his scheduling, he's kind of managed his schedule in recent years, especially the indoor fall season where he just doesn't play as much because I think it really does beat up on his knees. I mean, people forget the guys, he's going to be 26, but he turned pro at 15. That's a long it's a lot of mileage on his knees. So I, I don't make a huge deal out of it because I think when he gets to clay, he can sort of press the reset button. Although if he gets to clay and in those finals in Monte Carlo, Rome, et cetera, Djokovic is waiting for him, then we're really going to see where he's at physically and mentally. But I can't fault that. I mean, only he knows the kind of pain he's in, and I, I can't slam the guy for pulling. If he's not right, you know, he's risking really doing further damage. And tendonitis, anybody who's had it will tell you it's a painful thing to deal with. So, I, I mean, I can't slam the guy for what he did. If he, if he, if you're not right, you can't compete. And that's basically what, that's he, what said. he said. That's I can't exactly compete. what he said. Yeah, it wasn't a. And, you know, it's not like thing. he's a chronic guy that just, you know, he, I mean, look at his, look at the amount of matches he plays year after year. The guy. He plays. He plays a full schedule. I think he's tapered down indoor fall season because that really beats up his body. And also, you know, remember, he did play singles and doubles at Indian Wells, and that's a lot of pounding as well. Yep. Yeah, well, he gets the clay starting now because hard courts are over with. And um, and if he does get Djokovic in those tournaments, I think that's going to be fascinating because that's always the area it where it's be. sort of, you know, where yep. he's his salvation surface and now... We'll find out. Yeah, we will. All right. We will uh, be back actually on Wednesday with another podcast, uh, Davis Cup Davis Cup specific. The quarterfinal round begins, and we'll talk about those matchups at that point. And Marty so Fish out. And Marty Fish yeah. and Gael Monfils out of that Fies, U.S.-France right. tie. So that's a kind of interesting one after that. So Richard Pagliaro, I'm Ed McGrogan. Thank you for listening to Tennis.com Podcast. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.